Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we're asking that question that drives every writer. Can fiction save your life? I feel like I have a pretty quick answer. But first... Angie Powers, what are you working on this week, right now, today, yesterday, and tomorrow? Well, I'm continuing to do a lot of client work. I am trying to do some prep for the experiment in July. But mostly I find myself really wanting to explore the back of my eyelids. (laughs) Is that a weather thing? A summer thing? I had a hard time sleeping last night. It's that, yeah. All right, then. How about yourself? I guess, you know, that can be creative. The back of your eyelids. Mm-hmm. Dream time. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Me. Yes. So I'm back to the waiting, the cycles of waiting. And so, and I know that I have at least a month. So um, that's uh, so relaxing, I guess. But anyway, I'm thinking about what else to do with, you know, w- with my time. And I think that there's, you know, there's sort of the idea of like, you just, you just write. Like people, like I finished that book and if I still have an hour left in my writing time I you know roll the piece of paper into the typewriter and keep going mm-hmm. <laughs> um so there's that then there's the like well now I'm waiting so I have time off and I don't know there's something in between so I'm trying to I'm doing some stuff and I'm trying to think about what my what my big value is around doing some stuff while I'm waiting okay well you're the one who had this Topic. Yeah. So I saw Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert came to Sebastopol. And if you're unfamiliar with um, Elizabeth Gilbert. Or Sebastopol. Well, those will be in the show notes. (laughs) Um, And Sebastopol was not unfamiliar with Elizabeth Gilbert. There were about 300 people packed into our community center, which six months ago was underwater. So it was was an exciting moment for us. Um, And... Somebody said, well, first of all, everybody is like, eat, pray, love, eat, pray, love, eat, pray, love, which is, I know, one of your very favorite books ever. (laughs) Not. Oh, no. We're not going to comment on whether or not it was Angie's favorite book. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Angie's facial expression will be in the show notes. (laughs) Anyway, um... So, like, one person stood up and said, eat, pray, love, save my life. And um, can you tell me about what fiction saved your life or what book saved your life? And so, first of all, Elizabeth Gilbert sort of morphed it into what changed her life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think possibly because her partner just died that maybe she's, like, loath to say a book saved her life. But um, she certainly had recommendations of books that, changed her life and you know Brene Brown and um Pema Chodron and I'm sure something by Ann Patchett actually she didn't she didn't mention her but they're just like buddies you know what I mean yeah here's what's true all the books she mentioned were nonfiction, and she bah, said bah, bah. you know I guess like I don't know if there's any fiction that saved my life or changed my life or whatever and I thought well first of all here I thought Pshaw, you know, but I think it's not the same thing. It's harder to talk about the ways in which fiction saves our lives. It's a much more intimate, personal experience. Okay. Well, because those other things are sort of like, yeah. Okay. So those other things are sort of more like, um, 
how-tos in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? No, they really are. I mean, yeah, they really, really are. And in that sense, they, you know... And often fiction is how not to. <laughs> well, also, like, when you're having nonfiction as the, the book that changed your life, there's a part of me that thinks, well, you know, you could just hang out with really smart people more often. Because there's something about, you know, well-researched books with advice about how to live your life that you could probably get in a far more pleasing way by just, you know, going to a pub with someone. And that may be part of it. She may, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she's out at the pub with Brene Brown and Pema Chodron. Right, right. <laughs> and okay. I presume Pema Chodron might go to a pub. You don't know. Um, but in any case, so that's part of it. But on the way back, somebody said to me, well, is there fiction that saved your life or changed your life? We, you know, mm-hmm. and I think absolutely. So I can name a few things. And the first thing that came to mind, or one of the early things that came to mind was, um, well, there are two things, that two collections of short stories that immediately arise. And one is Grace Paley's Later That Same Day, or whichever one has wants in it. There's like enormous changes of the last moment later that same day. They were like, they were in my house. I found them and I kind of, I didn't sort of read them cover to cover. I leafed through them. But I remember reading Wants, the short story Wants, mm-hmm. and then reading it out loud. And like, it's still just... One of the deepest, most important, favoritest, funniest pieces of writing. Is this the one that has the... The The ex-husband and the the library. library. Yes. So good. Just so good. And I think it absolutely can teach you how to live, which is maybe a slightly different question. But, um, And I think in the midst of the chaos of my childhood, it maybe did give me something to hold on to and float on because Mm -hmm. it was buoyant and moving and you know something that's buoyant and moving will keep you floating and get you out of there yes <laughs> and the other one is jesus's son mm-hmm. by dennis johnson um i mean honestly and then and then i would say and that was that was like you can write about this stuff and like about your mind being blown about being a freak about you know all that stuff and i will also say a lot of poetry Mm-hmm. Like Alice Walker's early poems, um, which she was really wrote really young, and and um, and they are kind of completely amazing and come to me in moments, and especially I would say you know, over the the decade after I first read them, they mm-hmm. were you know guide mm-hmm. like guideposts, like this is how you live and this is how you understand the world. So, how about you? Is there any fiction or poetry that you would say saved or changed your life? Well, I've talked frequently about the Oz books, so setting childhood. But you haven't talked about them. Well, but you haven't talked about them in the context of how they might have saved your life. I think there were a lot of ways in which, when I was a kid, I felt very different. And I loved the idea that there was this other land somewhere where you could be. And honestly, like, when I look back on it, I know there was a part of me that kind of believed it existed. Oh, absolutely. And so, well, you say absolutely, but um, but it really, I really, I think on some level, like I knew it was a book, the story, and there's the here's the person who was writing it and whatever. And there was this part of me that just longed for it as a location. Absolutely. And it's so, a hidden one, right? So it's, it's, it's... Well, yes, I've talked about, yeah. you know... 
the spell over Oz, hiding it forever from the outside world. And there, and there are so many those. places like that which we can only access through books, and that's yeah. just one way books save our lives. They give us access to the places we need to go that we can't access anymore. Right, but if you talk spells. about like something that saved my life, okay, um, I don't know, David right. Bowie. Um, Ooh, radio pause. No, I guess I'm just really tired. One, I'm so tired. <laughs> but the other th- is just that um, I think that, yeah, no, David Bowie was, like, amazing because he opened up just, you know, he interacted with a variety of art forms and brought them sort of together. So if you're thinking about the, the album cover for, like, Scary Monsters, um you know, he's a clown from the Comedia dell'arte, right? So he's bringing these very different aesthetics together. Um, you know, and the video for that happens on the moon, right? So you're just like, what? Uh, so that was awesome. But that's not the same. How about Nightwood? Loved Nightwood, it's true. Did it save or change your life in any way? Um, well, I think... When I, when I reflect on the books that I love, they made me feel joyous in some way. They made me feel. And so, um, like, I really, really, like, so, yes, I did love Nightwood. I did love um, East of Eden. Mm, I loved, I <laughs> loved, actually, I was really into Herman Hesse for a while. Um, and, and that actually was also intriguing to me because... Uh, you know, I don't even know that I really understood it. Loved To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in eighth grade. Oh, I know what else came up for me um, was um, The Passion by Jeanette Winterson. Mm-hmm. I'm telling mm-hmm. you stories. Trust right. me. And I would say that. That I mean, changed every lesbian in Santa Cruz life. <laughs> you were there in 1992. Then your life was changed I by know, The Passion. That's probably why I'm a lesbian. Yes, that alone. Um, I knew somebody who claimed to have become a lesbian through academic study yeah there were people in the 70s who did that too it wasn't that though it wasn't an asexual identity no no it It wasn't an asexual identity well I think for some of the 70s lesbians it was really theoretical okay do you know what I mean like what a weird theory but anyway (laughs) um it was a binary moment. I am just trying to think of books that really, you know, anything that makes you feel impacts you, right? right? Absolutely. So anything worth reading could change your <laughs> life, right? Well, that's what I think. And I think it's almost like I think that her not going to those is, is actually almost because fiction is so intimate. That it's it's sort of more like, say, having sex than it is like going to a talk by Brene Brown in a bunch I'm of... never going to be able to read to our children again. <laughs> well, okay. Or, you know... I mean, which is actually okay because they're, they're 12. Done. But, <laughs> they're done. They're uh, read <laughs> but, um, but no, okay. So anyway, I mean, you're taking the metaphor too literally. I'm just saying it's an intimate experience that isn't as put into words a bowl as reading nonfiction is. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's what, something I want to investigate is what we talk about when we talk about books. 
about okay. fiction. Right. Although I've been in this book group for like five years, so I should know. But I feel still, I feel it as a live question in my mind. Yeah. You know, I'm listening to a book right now called How to Read Nature. So it's a totally a nonfiction book. But what's interesting is that to me, the things that are resonating with me are the things that I find amazing in fiction. And so I, it was well, it was interesting because, you know, last last time on Storymaker Show, <laughs> I was talking about ways to man, you know, things that you could do to help your writing when you have these really crazy um, schedules for the summer. Right, right, right. Unstructured time. And this whole book is really about taking time to notice things in in very specific ways. So there's, there are concrete little exercises that you're supposed to do. And the one that I was just listening to today was actually about looking at the sky. And um, there are all these sayings that we have about weather, about clouds, and they actually correlate with real weather changes and how one might be able to predict. So uh, my mom used to say, uh, red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor's warning. And that's a real saying. And the book actually just broke down what that means. I just want to say like the way when you first said it, I was thinking because we're talking about reading as a way of saving your life, that I was thinking like red, R-E-A-D, like red at night. Oh, right. Sailor's Delight, Red in the Morning, Sailor's Morning. Um, a book can save or threaten your life well, I was depending talking, on when you read it. I was talking about the sky. Oh, yeah, the so, color, R-E-D. Yeah. So, but it was interesting to, to, to look at these phenomenon that we don't really pay attention to anymore because we have so much insulation between ourselves and... Uh, you know, the outside environment for the most part, not everybody. And I understand that, but I'm just saying for people, for people who live in a house or, you know, and it's interesting. So this person really talks about like paying attention to groups of people when one person is not dressed for the weather and it's windy. Mm. And, you know, they'll say like, you can see how groups move in relation to the weather. If you pay attention because like, do they surround the person? So, yeah. So what ends up happening is you'll often see someone moving to the more protected side if they don't have, like, a windbreaker on. Right. And if they're, you know, so the, and they just kind of go someone through, like, put different... put an arm around them. Or... But different formations that a group will take unthinkingly mm. in the face of these natural impacts. And that's what I love about... Fiction. Like I think about the Poisonwood Bible, right? Like one of the things that completely sticks with me to this day, there was one is is the lack of pollinators. So when she's talking about this gorgeous, lush garden that is just booming, but there's nothing there to pollinate the vegetables that that these characters brought from the US mm. to Africa, they die. And so it's this wonderful, hugely specific image that you get and you're like, oh yeah, no, that totally makes sense, right? And it's a metaphor that your brain can totally get for what's happening to this family, right? Mm. There's ways in which it can look successful, but it's not. Right. It's, 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 it's not, not sustainable yeah. within the environment they've moved to. Right? Yes. And yeah. so I just, these are the things that I love about writing. And so like or about fiction it specifically is when you take those kinds of details 
and they resonate with a story about a person. So it's not just that it's intimate. It's not just that I'm here sharing my mind with your mind, but that there are these larger pieces in play that the author, who is a skillful author, brings through. And, um, you know, it's just sort of amazing to think about those pieces and to think about, like, oh, if you're writing a... Um, historical novel, how do you know, in some ways, how to recreate someone's feeling of discomfort? Mm -hmm. Because, as I was talking about before, when we went camping and we just sort of sat there in the rain after a certain point, in our cotton clothing, completely poorly dressed for the weather, but no longer afraid of it. Right. No longer afraid of our own discomfort. And in fact, there was a way in which the discomfort became different because we had been exposed to, in the matter, over a course of three days. Right. Right? So you would be soaked and it sort of didn't matter. And then you think, okay, well, how does this apply to writing? Which sounds ridiculous, but when you think about it, when you think about the context, everything that we do when we write is impacted by how we experience the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if we're not paying attention, we're not experiencing the world. Right. So then we can't imagine what it would be like to be really thirsty. Mm-hmm. To be really hungry. To recognize not just what time of day it is by where the sun is, but by the kinds of clouds that are coming across and what that actually means or will lead to or, you know, so these, these things that we used to know, actually we need to know as current writers. Right. Well, and it's interesting because um, one of the things I talk about a lot is, is Lisa Cron's Wired for Story mm -hmm. and how, and Story Genius and how we need, how, why is it that human beings can sort of disappear into story for hours at a time what kind of what survival right. function does that serve anyway and i um so i think that you know and and it, and it does and i talk about that with groups of people as i'm launching into various craft considerations because i think it's all the stuff about structure and craft comes out of this deep human need for story this deep you know wired in human need for story and um, i see you getting ready to argue with that go on we have time <laughs> let's hear it I always just, you know, I... I know, I made a statement, so you want to argue with it. It's not just that. I, I really... antithesis. Yes, synthesis. I think, I just, I struggle when we say, well, we know this thing about why we do what we do. I'm always reluctant to sort of say, oh, we're wired for this, or we're wired for that. Um, just because I think we just really don't have a lot of information. We have, we, we know this, that we learn by metaphor. Right, one of the ways that we actually transfer information is by creating analogies, by using metaphor that, that allows us to collect information into a comprehensible chunk. Could that be why story exists? Rather than like here we're, we're sharing an information about like, because story to me, right, is definitely... But you, but you said learn by metaphor and all I've ever really proposed... Um, is that story, I mean, not, story is the, the base of what I proposed in the, that through Lisa Cron is story is a way of learning. Right, but what I'm saying is maybe it's less than story. 
Like the mm-hmm. story might actually well, story be a byproduct a- of of a kernel of metaphor. Okay, but why would you need a story then? Do we need it? Well, in the sense that we it's it's per, it's perme, it permeates culture in various mm-hmm. ways and it seems, you know, so it's in the fact that it exists to the depth and breadth that it exists, it seems like there's a suggestion that we need it. That we, or that sure. even that it doesn't run counter to our survival. No, it doesn't run counter. And in fact, it may be, and that, and why would we retain something? Not like alligators. Why would we retain something? I bet we need alligators too. We uh, maybe in a systemic sense, but not like in a, if you, if you're not <laughs> afraid of, do you know chimpanzees are afraid of snakes? Well, that makes sense. Well, you say it makes sense, but not all snakes are poisonous. Right. So you think that it's it's just, it's too broad. It's a generalization. You think stereotypes are a well. The reason I brought that up, and again, that was in the book that we were. I was listening to today as I was walking the dog. That there are some things that actually we can see across species, hmm. and fear of snakes is one of them, which is weird to me, because why? And I like snakes. And what it turns out is that there are certain biological patterns that happen over and over like brightness to indicate poison right so then um you know and they're saying like basically if you were a not very bright but very poisonous frog you still got eaten like (laughs) do you know what i mean you weren't bright in what sense (laughs) (laughs) meaning there's a high correlation between uh toxicity uh-huh. and bright colors okay and so if you were a yeah. you know a tree frog say yeah. that was very poisonous but were sort of a dull brown <laughs> you were easily you know eaten people right. eat- although you'd think that then the people who eat dull brown would die out or the you know animals that eat dull brown right. would die but out but the too. larger point being that if you didn't have these colors that indicated stay yeah, away right. But that we've genetically built these things up over time. So these bright colors signify danger. Right. And it was interesting because they correlated it between uh, road signs. Like our response to road signs is not coincidental. Like we don't pick, I don't know if this is true. And our response to danger in story. What? Our response to danger in story is not coincidental. No. But the idea that a bright yellow, high contrast, bright color. So we have a lot of bright red, bright yellow, bright orange. These colors signify danger and concern, even though, you know, and this person's making an argument that there's a relationship. I might argue that maybe, you know, is color vision? (laughs) Well... No, but like, is the reason we have is the, the reason we have color vision because we need to see and differentiate those things because of poisonousness, or because if you don't have color vision, those things don't really matter. Like, do you know what I mean? Unless you can differentiate, but in any case, I feel yes. like we're very far afield somehow. Okay, but do you? No. All right, bring it back. Bring it back. So the idea was here. We are talking about story and whether or not it's wired. And that stemmed from the question of, can fiction save your life? 
And for me, only things that are really immersive, like the best virtual reality is an amazing novel, right? Mm-hmm. Or a short mm-hmm. story, but something that really immerses you in a way you can't be immersed by simply looking at something or um so that's what I'm gonna say. I don't know if it can that, save, that can save your life. Or I don't know if it's your life. change your life. I'll go with um, <laughs> or be wildly entertaining. I don't know. I have one corollary question for you, and mm-hmm. then it, and then we'll move on to steal this. Which is the corollary question is: Do you write fiction to save lives? I don't. <laughs> I think I write things that might ease my pain. Or other people's know. Yeah, I mean, but I, I think that there's, you know, there's things that I do believe about life. Like, I do believe friendship is critical to a well-lived life. I think that, um, you know, I think it means something that we can look at rates of giftedness you know, based on who gets tested, right? I think those are important things. These are these are pieces of the projects you've completed. Yes. And so I and it causes me pain to think about like how uh, groups of people disappear from those lists over time or never show up because... On the giftedness list. Right. Yeah. Um, or never show up because the process we use to identify students who, who are gifted in whatever way uh, maybe don't come from... It's biased and flawed when it's an individual teacher picking as opposed to a test. Right. Right. So I write about those things because they do hurt me, right? And right. I want to see a world where those people... Uh, sometimes I identify as those people and sometimes, you know, it's... Most of the time, I'm you know. There's yeah, some but so, part but of so, me so, there. so there's a way in which you you are using story to make room on some level, believing that that some yeah that we do that we that seeing a story and identifying with characters certainly changes us and our perception of those characters and their plight in the world and what's possible and all of those things. You know, here's what I'm going to say because we're talking about writing. Yes, and or filmmaking. If I talk about filmmaking, then I, then I, I just. Watching sort of the newer wave of women in power in film. Mm-hmm. Watching um, Captain Marvel's friend pilot the plane, right? Like, she was in control. She was a badass. And I needed to see that. And mm-hmm. I think there's definitely ways that I do believe and get super psyched about finding out ways to bring images to life that I think make a difference to other people. And sometimes, because of the way I've been raised, it's a little bit hard for me to imagine that the images that I would associate myself with are the ones other people need to see. But at the same time, there are so many that I really hunger for. I realize, you know, like... When, oh God, the L word came out, right? And it was. Boundaries. Uh oh. You know, we were just happy to watch anything with, you know, gay people on it. (laughs) 
of any stripe. And it didn't really matter at all. It didn't even really matter that tonally that things shifted from one season to the next. It didn't really matter that sometimes it was funny and campy and sometimes it was like a soap opera. And, and it sometimes would leave, like, like weird years and yeah. <laughs> we were like, we'll still keep watching <laughs> because we need this. Okay, so we need this. We need story. Well, we need to see ourselves in the world. That's the thing that's sort of... But we, we have this capacity to see ourselves in something that's only tangentially ourselves. Yeah. Like any Pixar film. Like a little... I am a fish. I'm a fish egg. <laughs> I am... <laughs> I am a car. Okay. Your, your fish egg pose should also be <laughs> show notes. Like there's a po- there's a posture that goes with I'm a fish egg. Yes. <laughs> I'm a little fish egg. Okay. So around. wrapping up here, uh, we I think we firmly agree that fiction can save your life. Thank you for listening. And it is time for Steal This. Amateur Poets Bar, Professional Poets Steel, what have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to take and make your own? Well, I am actually really enjoying this book, so I am going to... What are you going to steal from it? uh, I'm going to... This is the nature book. Yes. um, I think less, what am I going to steal from it? And two, like, I'm going to do the exercises. Oh, there are exercises? There are exercises about noticing different things. Like, one of them is, you know, learning how to start a fire. One of them is reading clouds and you know so it's really I'm excited to sort of write down these different exercises and just engage with them in a different way because when I first got the book I was like trying to imagine being at my local park which has some open land and is a you know all of that except for there's a very prescribed trail you're not going randomly into the watershed section or anything like that so um, so it's nice that these are, these are things you can do in your suburban home or out your apartment window. So, um, that's yeah, what I want to, that's I love what it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am really loving my father's day present <laughs> from Angie, uh, call, that's a long story, but anyway, called keep going, which is Austin Cleon's third in this. She's not my dad. No, <laughs> no. I'm really Let's just say not anybody's dad, but if you miss Mother's Day, it's just your next chance to get it right. And you did. You hit it out of the park with this one. Keep Going by Austin Kleon. And this is the third in his Steal Like an Artist series. I don't know what the series is called, but that was the first one. The second one was called Show Your Work. Mm. This is called Keep Going, and I'm like halfway through Keep Going, and I'm going to... Keep Going! And I just love his attitude, these books... The whole thing. And um, one of the things that I am definitely going to steal from, and he says, you know, steal this or whatever. He doesn't quite say that, but he's like, I stole this and you should do or whatever. Um, But one of the things he talks about is like, even if you get something huge that becomes like big and famous and lots and lots of people like it. And I sort of saw this like Elizabeth Gilbert with her, like all these fans, but what they really, I mean, she's just done so many things and what Mm. they love is eat, pray, love. But um, not everybody, but in any case, He's like, really, there's still going to be just a handful of people whose opinions really matter to you. So make 
your art for them. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. talks about gift, making things as gifts. Ooh, I like that. It's really cool. So And it's a nice frame. Yeah. Making things as gifts and um it's pretty, pretty cool. Like he talks about the um I don't know. There, anyway, I just love this book. So I'm recommending the book. Steal this book. No. Um, but and and that practice. I'm not really saying steal the book. I'm I'm saying go buy it at yes, your no, local bookstore. All right. This has been Storymaker's show. Now go story.